Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol Jesus 911. Monday morning. My name is Jesse Romero. I was in San Francisco over the weekend speaking at a conference out there with uh, at the Diocese of uh, San Francisco with the great Archbishop um, Corleone, who did the closing Mass. You know, it's uh, what a very, as I looked at San Francisco, I was very saddened to see such a beautiful city, uh, oceanfront, you know, all the way down there with the coastline. Uh, some of the most beautiful skyrise buildings, but yet you can just see uh, all the damage that's been done there as a result of of um, Democrat legislation. The homeless problem is off the top, is over the charts. Uh, the drug problem is over the uh, is over the top. You have uh, crime is just through the roof out there as well. It's uh, and and it's called San Francisco. I mean, St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, and, and, the, and the largest town right next to it is called Sacramento, which means sacrament. It is very sad to see these cities that were, that were basically colonized by Catholic missionaries and the Gospels brought to them by Catholic missionaries. It's, uh, it's sad to see what's happened to these, to these cities that, uh, you know, have the name of a great Catholic saint. Today, by the way, is the Feast of St. Januarius. The Feast of St. Januarius. The earliest testimony about Januarius is the record of, of the priest Uranius, who back in 432 AD wrote of the miraculous appearance of Januarius. He was a bishop and a martyr of the Church of Naples, Italy. <clears throat> and... Uh, there was a miraculous appearance of Januarius to St. Paulinus of Nola on his deathbed. St. Januarius is said to have been beheaded with his six companions under the Emperor Diocletian around 305 AD. His relics were brought to Naples, Italy, which lies in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, which is an active volcano. When Mount Vesuvius erupted back in 1631, prayers to the saint are believed to have protected the city from destruction. St. Januarius was this, uh, this holy man fought to the death for the law of his God. And, uh, and he did not fear the words of the godless, for he, was, he has, had built his faith upon the rock. St. Januarius, pray for us. This month is also the month uh, as Catholics, the secular, the secular humanists, they have their dedications and they have their, their pagan feast days. The month of September is devoted to Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows is a devotion given to us by St. Bridget of Sweden. This morning, I just felt moved to do some of my, in my morning prayers. I did the 15 promises of St. Bridget of Sweden this morning. Right after my rosary, just, uh, just felt God was calling me to do that, especially this month, dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows. And again, this is a devotion given to us by St. Bridget of Sweden. So during this month, devoted to Our Lady of Sorrows, we're invited to console the sorrowful heart of our mother the mother our mother mary 
and to unite our sufferings to hers, and by doing so to receive beautiful graces of consolation and strength. <clears throat> My friend Paul's not on today, so I will be doing the show solo. I want to just continue talking about really part two about eschatology. So what is eschatology? Eschatology is a study of of the end of the world, of end times, of last things. There's a great article on eschatology that was written by one of the by one of the Italian giants. His name is Marco Tosati. He was born in, in Genoa, Italy in 1947. He's a renowned Italian journalist, and since 1981, he's been doing this a long time. He's covered the religious and the political activity of the Holy See at the Vatican, and he also writes for a daily newspaper in Italy called La Stampa. This article that he wrote is called Ratzinger, in other words, Father Ratzinger, who became uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. So these were the young notes, the young, the, the young reflections of the young Ratzinger. Tychonius, he's a 4th century theologian in the Catholic Church. And Fatima, an interpretive key for the end times. So he takes the writings of Ratzinger, theologian, Tychonius, an ancient theologian, <clears throat> and the, and the uh, statements at Fatima. He puts them together. And he says that we have here a good interpretive key for the end time. So let me continue with Marco Tassetti's well-written article on end times. He writes, for Tychonius, again, this 4th century theologian, it is the new Israel who must depart on her new exodus. The true church herself will affect the great apostasy as a way of salvation from her enemies. Did you hear that? That the true church, the Catholic church, will affect the great apostasy. In a real sense, the true church will force the apostasy into the light for the body of the devil present in the false, in the false brothers inhabiting the church is already and always has been apostate. The fact has, has merely been concealed. So, uh, <clears throat> Mossadi writes, or Tassadi writes, that there's always... There's always uh, false brothers inside the one true church, false apostles. He says, expounding on apocalypse, uh, on the Apocalypse, chapter 16, verse 19, which begins, and the great city was divided into three parts, close quote. Tychonius, the fourth century theologian, states, quote, this great city is all people entirely, everyone who is under heaven, who will be divided into three parts when the church is divided resulting in the heathen being one part and the abomination of desolation another and the church which will have gone out from the midst of her a third. And again, in commenting on Apocalypse, on the Apocalypse chapter 18, verse 4, the Bible says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Go out from her, my people, so that you do not share in her sins and so, and so that you are not stricken by her plagues. Close quote. Ty Tychonius, the 4th century theologian, writes, Here, the Apostle John shows more fully that Babylon consists of two separate parts, external and internal, out of which also holy people, having been clearly warned by God, will leave. <clears throat> what could that mean? What can that mean in relation to the, to our, the church right now? That's anybody's guess. 
he writes, uh, Tosari writes, the Latin word decessio means a separation or division, meaning a great cleavage or cutting in two. It also has a sense of withdrawal. This withdrawal is patently what Tychonius infers from the revelations made by the angels of God to St. John the Apostle, that the cleavage will be the result of a withdrawal. The mystical body of Christ will extract herself from the mystery of iniquity, precisely in order to expose the evil veiled within her so that she may subsequently defeat it. So what's happening here is that Tassati is saying as he takes these authors together, he's saying that the true church is like, right now it's like a two like, like like a person that has two heads in one body. We've seen deformities like that. People that are born with two heads in with one body, they're attached to each other. He says this is exactly the way the false church is attached to the one true church. They're attached together under the one head Christ. It's just a hideous picture, but I, you know, you've seen human beings that have been born with that deformity. Tostadi writes, in the final persecution, the mystery of iniquity which had been held back and hidden within the church will will come out and be revealed. That mystery of lawlessness will reveal its zenith and be enfleshed in the figure of the Antichrist. As Tychonius explains, it is necessary that Antichrist be revealed in the whole world and in the same way to be overcome everywhere by the church. By now, But now, he is hidden in the church. So notice what Tychonius says, that right now, who is hidden in the church? He says Antichrist. That's what he says. But now he, that references to the Antichrist. How do, you know, how do we know? The sentence right before Tychonius writes, that mystery of lawlessness will reach its zenith and, and be in flesh in the figure of the Antichrist. As Tychonius explains, <clears throat> it is necessary that Antichrist be revealed in the whole world and in the same way to overcome everywhere by the church but now he is hidden in the church. This is this is something you have never heard this before, that the Antichrist is hidden in the church. This is this is basically new territory for me. It says, as a consequence of the true church extricating herself from the anti-church, Tychonius, the fourth century theologian, maintains that the body of Christ will, for all intents and purposes, activate and initiate her own passion. Hmm, interesting. Can we can we be living that right now? Tychonius writes, before the falling away, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, before that happens, everyone is considered the people of God. When the falling away will have happened, then the third part of the people of God will appear. <clears throat> Another theologian, modern theologian, Robinson, comments, he says, the saints will endure and faithfully preach God's word, and the false brothers will be unmasked when they turn and persecute the church. Hmm. Those in league with the devil, all those saying that they are Christians, will fight against the church. Robinson thus concludes, the persecution finally and completely reveals the identity of the saints and the false brothers. We'll continue talking about eschatology, what will happen before the end of the world. Stick around in relation to the Antichrist. We'll be right back. Now, 
back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911. Eschatology is the actual study of the end of the world, the way things will end, end time study. I've got a well-written article by... Marco Tassati, a well-respected Italian journalist who's been writing for 40 years on Vatican affairs, politics, and culture. He wrote an article taking the thoughts of the young Father Joseph Ratzinger, uh, a a respected 4th century theologian by the name of Tychonius, and also the the, uh, prophecies of Fatima. And he puts them together to give us some of the things that will happen before Jesus comes back at the end of time. This is called eschatology, the study of end times. Marco Tassati writes now, he says, that, now this is, this is brutal what I'm about to share with you. He says in, in the beginning of this paragraph, Satan's chosen instrument, the bishops. Wow. He writes, at this point, a natural question is, at the time of the predestined apostasy, Will the faithful immediately recognize the false brethren for what they are and break off affiliation with them? Or will genuine believers be persuaded to remain in association with the impostors? Listening to them and following their lead, how will the false brethren deceive people into trusting their guidance? Into their, into trusting their guidance? Tychonius is unequivocally emphatic about this point. These false brethren are often found among the church's leaders, the bishops. Drop the mic moment. In denouncing the hypocrisy of the bishops, Tychonius gives an account of the second beast introduced in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 11. It reads, And I saw another beast coming up out of the land, and he had two horns similar to those of a lamb, and, and as he spoke, as a snake. Close quote. Tychonius, the theologian in the 4th century, write, decries, A lamb carries on after a snake secretly inserts its venom into it. For if he spoke openly as a snake, he would not be similar to a lamb. Now he fashions himself into a lamb, through which disguise he attacks a secure lamb. He speaks for God, through which disguise he turns away from the way of truth, those seeking God. Because of this, the Lord said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Tychonius concludes this, concludes this passage with one, of, with one of the most incisive observations. The bishops do, he, he writes this quote, The bishops do under the guise of a gift of the church. Hmm. Under the guise of a gift of the church. Sounds like when you hear that, yeah, that Vatican II is a gift. And you hear the synodal, the synods are gifts to the church. So Tychonius writes back in the 4th century, this incisive observation, the bishops do under the guise of a gift of the church. What advances the will of the devil? The bishops offer to the beast the veneer of a lamb while he uses them as mouthpieces for his agenda. Here's something interesting. 
I've heard uh, <clears throat> I've heard some bishops say that homosexuality, uh, homosexuals are a gift. They bring their gifts to the church. Hmm. If that isn't the mouthpiece of Satan, I don't know what else is. But in another passage of in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle writes, quote, And I saw three unclean spirits go forth from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet. Close quote. Tychonius, the theologian, remarks, quote, For the dragon, that is the devil, and the beast, the body of the devil, and the false prophets, that is the bishops of the body of the devil. I've never heard that exegesis, but this is very interesting. Hmm. That is, the bishops of the body of the devil are one spirit. Furthermore, <clears throat> Tychonius declares the throne of the beast is his church. On account of the duplicitous bishops <clears throat> that will be under the, his sway, those treacherous bishops will give shape and form to the devil's body, this false church, even after the true church has detached herself from it. Now, some of this language has also been used by Archbishop Venerable Fulton Sheen, by the way, that there's a true church and there's a false church. He's also used this language. Fulton Sheen has also said that the Antichrist will come from within the bishops, within the body of the bishops. So, again, this article that has... Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, young, the young Joseph Ratzinger, or Tychonius, the 4th century theologian, and uh, some of the prophecies of Fatima, a lot of this has also been said by Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen. <laughs> then he talks about the passion of the church. <clears throat> Once the apostasy has been enacted, however, the bride of Christ, the true church, will then be battling not only the false brothers, but the heathen in the world as well which will have joined forces with, false, with the false brothers in, in, in an openly united front to the whole body of the devil it was permitted by God. This is exactly what we're fighting right now, by the way. It's a two-front battle. Faithful Catholics are fighting. Uh, I mean, think about this. Church militant, this is exactly what they're talking about all the time, that we're, that we're fighting the culture, but at the same time, we're fighting the false brethren, the false Catholics within the church. So what uh, Church Militants has been saying for 20 years, uh, this well-written article, this is exactly the thesis of this article. Yeah, this is happening right now. The deep state is working within the deep church. The article continues, yet there's no question in Tychonius' mind of the final outcome for the church. The last persecution will purify her up to the seventh trumpet, which will mark the coming of the Lord. That will be the church of the future time when, with the wicked already separated from the midst, only the good will reign with Christ. Thus, Tychonius is certain that the church of the last time, whether it is in, in, its, in its bishops or in its people, is in no way able to perish. Although she will be persecuted like her bridegroom and even appear defeated, she cannot be permanently destroyed. She shares in the bridegroom's divine life. Furthermore, she will prevail over the Antichrist and ultimately rout the false church. This is something that we know from the New Testament, that the final victory is ours, but it's not going to come without a cost. Tassati writes, 
Nevertheless, Tychonius had no illusions about the severity of that ultimate conflict in what might be the most lucid and pristine section in his, in his entire exposition. When drawing the parallel between Christ and his church, Tychonius, the theologian, emphasizes their interconnectedness. That which the head suffered once, now he suffers through his members, since he has clothed himself with his church, and the church is slain daily for Christ, that it may live with him forever. No one should think that the apostles alone had died for Christ, and that now martyrdom has ceased, and that persecutors are not in the church. For it is necessary that the Son of Man always go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, and to be killed and to rise again after three days. Thus, in that culminating persecution, when false brethren and the pagan world relentlessly attacked the church, the commingling of suffering between Jesus and his mystical body and the bride will reach its apex. In her, the church completes what he began. Therefore, in her, he receives what he gave, and he is crowned in her whom he crowns. For there is nothing that he does or has without his body. Jesus gave his life for his bride, the church, in the end times. She will give herself for him in a way she never has before. Just as Jesus glorified his father through his self-offering, and so also his father glorified him with, with the glory that his son had with him before the world began, so also, at that time, the church's ultimate self-offering will be her crowning moment of giving herself completely for Christ, and he in turn will crown her. He and his bride will then be perfectly one in their mutual gift of self. Tychonius, Fatima, and the Great Apostasy. Seen in the light of Tychonian theology, this 4th century intellectual, Benedict XVI's various comments about the significance of the message of Fatima take on a new significance. It becomes apparent that Pope Benedict XVI understands the message of Fatima within the context of Tychonius' assertion that the greatest evil for the church in the end time is evil within her. So Pope Benedict's hermeneutic principle in, in reference to the end of the world, he understands it in terms of the Fatima message, but also in terms of Tychonius' assertion that the greatest evil for the church in the end of, in the, end of the times, in the end times, is the evil hidden within the Catholic Church. During Pope Benedict's the 16th pilgrimage to Fatima in May 2010, a reporter asked the Holy Father, Your Holiness, what meaning do the Fatima apparitions have for us today? In June 2000, when you presented the text of the Third Secret in the Vatican Press Office, a number of us and our former colleagues were present. You were asked if the message could be extended beyond the attack on John Paul II to other sufferings on the, parts, on the part of the popes. Is it possible, to your mind, to include in that vision the sufferings of the church today. Considering that the Holy See had essentially closed the door on the third secret of Fatima, Benedict's reply was nothing short of stupefying. It can now also be perceived as Tychonian. Here is 
what Pope Benedict said when he was interviewed about Fatima. Again, he said, Beyond this great vision of Fatima of the suffering Pope, which we can in the first place refer to Pope John Paul II, <clears throat> an indication is given of realities involving the future of the Church, which are gradually taking shape and becoming evident. So it is true that, in addition to the moment indicated in the vision, there is mention of, there is seen, the need for a passion of the Church, which naturally is reflected in the person of the Pope. Yet the Pope stands for the Church, and thus it is sufferings of the Church that are announced. The Lord told us that the Church would constantly be suffering in different ways until the end of the world. As for the new things which, we've, which we can find in this message today, there's also the fact that the attacks on the Pope and the Church come not only from without, but the sufferings of the Church come precisely from within. Mm, there it is. He said it in a, to a reporter back in 2010 during a pilgrimage at Fatima. We'll continue talking about what Pope Benedict XVI says about the end of the world, what must happen, and what are some of the signs. Stick around. Jesus 911. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, one-man car. I'm sharing with you one of the most thoughtful writers in Italy. His name is Marco Tessati. He's writing about the end of the world from a Catholic perspective, but he's leaning on the writings of Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Benedict XVI's reflections on Fatima. And it looks like Pope Benedict also relies on this 4th century theologian called Tychonius. It's, it's, he's borrowing the theology of a 4th century theologian that, that was obviously very respected at that time. <clears throat> so Pope Benedict, once again, when he was asked about some of the things, one of the, some of the things that have been revealed in the third secret of Fatima, he said, there's also the fact that attacks on the Pope and the Church come not only from without, I know this from outside, but the sufferings of the Church come precisely from within the Church, from the sin existing within the Church. This too is something that we have always known. But today we're seeing it in a really terrifying way, that the greatest persecution of the Church comes not not from her enemies without, but arises from sin within the church. Close quote. In stating that the vision of the suffering Pope can refer to Pope John Paul II in the first place, Benedict implies that the vision refers to another Pope, or at least that it's not limited to John Paul II alone. Further, <clears throat> if what was shown to the children still involves the future of the church, then the unfolding of the third secret of Fatima is definitely not over and done with. Rather, the events that the third th secret points to are gradually taking shape and becoming evident even now. Pope Benedict's most theologically charged statement, however, was his comment about the vision designating a passion of the church. In other words, that the church must suffer. 
According to Benedict's assessment, <clears throat> the revelation of three young children of Fatima was primarily about that passion, the coming sufferings of the Catholic Church, which are still to unfold and will be reflected in the person of the Pope at that time. And from where will the and from where will the attacks that bring about this passion arise? Pope Benedict the Sixteenth clearly says, precisely from within the church. Wow. Drop the mic. In addition to these remarks from 2010, Cardinal Ratzinger comments in a 1984 interview with with, uh, Jesus Magazine, it's also full of important statements. The interviewer, Asked Cardinal Ratzinger, have you read what is called the third secret of Fatima? That is the one that Sister Lucia had sent to Pope John, John the Twenty-Third, and which the latter did not wish to make known and consigned to the Vatican archives. Ratzinger says, yes, I have read it. The interviewer says, why has it not been revealed? Ratzinger writes, Because according to the judgment of the popes, it adds nothing, literally nothing different to what a Christian must know concerning what derives from revelation. That is, a radical call for conversion, the absolute importance of history, the dangers of threatening the faith and the life of the Christian, and therefore of the world. And then, the importance of the last events at the end of time. If it is not made public, at least for the time being, it is in order to prevent religious prophecy from being mistaken for a quest for the sensational, literally, sensationalism. But the things contained in their secret correspond to what's been announced already in Scripture and has been said again and again in many other Marian apparitions. First of all, first of all, that of Fatima in what is already known of what its message contains. Another comment made by Cardinal Ratzinger uh, when he was interviewed, Cardinal Ratzinger spoke of the dangers to the faith and the life of the Christian. He referred to other Marian apparitions and he, and he referred to the sacred scripture that what is in the third secret corresponds to Scripture. It also corresponds to what has been mentioned again and again in many, many other Marian apparitions. So in referring to Scripture again, he specifies this, the eschatological texts of Scripture when he used that phrase in Italian, novissimi, which means the last things. Some have rather disingenuously tried to argue that when we speak of the last things, We're talking about death, judgment, heaven, hell, the four last things. But that is not possibly what Cardinal Ratzinger is talking about. That is not possibly what Our Lady was talking about. If we want to learn about the four last things, we need to consult the Catechism. It is very clearly set forth there. Our Lady did not come from heaven to impart a simple Catechism lesson. In other words... The Pope is saying Our Lady came to teach us prophecy, end-time prophecy, not what we already know about what's going to happen at the particular judgment. 
<clears throat> when the Cardinal spoke of the last thing, Cardinal Ratzinger, he was referring to what the prophet Daniel said would take place in the end. He was referring to the end times. <clears throat> the last things, or as, or as we would say in Greek, eskata. The eschatological things, the eschatological texts of Scripture. This is the third secret. Evaluating other messages of the Blessed Virgin from church-approved apparition sites, one is inclined to agree with that author. In, a, in addition, two cardinals who had personally read the third secret offer further credence of the, to that viewpoint. First, Cardinal Odie, a personal friend of Pope John XXIII, who had discussed the secret with him, said in testimony to an Italian journalist in 1990, it, the third secret, has nothing to do with Gorbachev. The Blessed Virgin was alerting us against apostasy in the church. Second, Cardinal Chiappi, a personal papal theologian to Pope John XXIII, Pope Paul VI, <clears throat> John Paul I, and John Paul II, in a communication to a certain professor, Baumgartner, in Salzburg, divulged, close, close quote, or quote. In the third secret of Fatima, it is foretold, among other things, that the great apostasy in the church will begin at the top. What does that mean? That means the Pope will usher in the, third, the great apostasy. That's what it means. This is from a very respected theologian who consulted a very, a very respected papal theologian that consulted the last four popes uh, starting from John Paul II, John Paul I, Pope Paul VI, and Pope John XXIII. He was also not only a cardinal, but he was also a professor of theology. He says that the great apostasy, the, the great apostasy in the Catholic Church is going to start at the top. What does that mean? That means that it's going to start at the papacy. That's the only thing it can mean. Alberto Cosmedo Amaral, Bishop of Fatima, <clears throat> from 1972 to 1993, gave a nod in the same direction, that of the apostasy. When he attested at a question and answer session at the Technical University of Vienna in 1984, he said this, The secret of Fatima speaks neither of atomic bombs, nor nuclear warheads, nor, per nor Pershing missiles, nor SS-20s. Its content concerns only our faith. To identify the secret of Fatima with, with, with catastrophic announcements or with a nuclear holocaust is to deform the meaning of the message. The loss of faith of a continent is worse than the annihilation of a nation. And it is true that faith is continually diminishing in Europe. Wow. As a final endorsement, as a final endorsement of this perspective, Father Gabriel Mort, the former chief exorcist of Rome, who personally knew Padre Pio for 26 years, gave a nearly identical verification, which he attributed to the great Capuchin saint and extraordinary mystic. Here is a segment of his exchange with Spanish author Jose Maria Savala during a 2011 interview. He said, quote, Forgive me for insisting on the third secret of Fatima. Did Padre Pio relate it then to the loss of faith within the church? Father Gabriel Amorth, he, he, he responded. He says, indeed, he states, one day Padre Pio said to me very sorrowfully, you know, Gabriel, it is Satan who has been introduced 
into the bosom of the church and in a very short time will come to rule a false church. This is exactly what Fulton Sheen said as well. St. Padre Pio and Venerable Fulton Sheen are speaking the same language. Then uh, <clears throat> Savala, the interviewer, asks him, Oh my God, some kind of Antichrist? When, when did he prophesy this to you? Savala asked the, uh, the interviewer. <clears throat> the Father Amor says, It must have been about 1960 since I was already a priest then. Was that why Pope John the Twenty Third had such a panic about publishing the Third Secret of Fatima, so that the people wouldn't think that he was the anti-pope or, or whatever it was? A slight but but knowing smile curls the lips of Father Amorth. Did Padre Pio say anything else to you about future catastrophic earthquakes, floods, wars, epidemics, hunger? Did he allude to the same plagues prophesied in the Holy Scriptures? <clears throat> Fa- um, Father Gabriel Morth says, nothing of the sort mattered to him. However, terrifying they proved to be, except for the great apostasy within the church, this was the issue that truly tormented him and for which he prayed and offered a great part of his suffering. Crucified out of love. We're talking about eschatology here. End times reflections by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. And his, takes, and his take on Fatima, and also his borrowing his eschatological viewpoint from Tychonius, a 4th century respected theologian. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol Jesus 911. Eschatology. What will happen in the church before the end of the world? These are the, ref- the reflections of, of Cardinal Ratzinger as jotted down by Marco Tassetti, a very respected Italian journalist who's been writing about Vatican affairs for 40 years. Chronologically and theologically, what does the great apostasy have to do with the last things to which Cardinal Ratzinger referred to? St. Paul affirms in his second epistle to the Thessalonians that the great apostasy is a triggering event for the commencement of the last things, that which unlocks the door for the advent of the son of perdition, the lawless one, the Antichrist. Once set in motion, there's no turning back. The world and all of humanity will have entered a a collision course with destiny. So then, consider at least some of the elements that Pope Benedict XVI had before him. As Cardinal, he had already attested that the third secret of Fatima pertains to the last things, and multiple reliable sources have confirmed that it relates specifically to the great apostasy. If Benedict accepts... Tychonius rendering of how apostasy commences commences and is operating from that vantage point might might that not shed light on his bizarre and controversial resignation could this decision to step outside in 2013 be the result of having deciphered the third secret from an entirely singular outlook influenced by his study of Tychonius does he view the theology of Tychonius as inextricably intertwined with Mary's message at Fatima? And if so, 
has he realized that as Pope, he has had to initiate the withdrawal of the true church from the false so as to inaugurate the great apostasy and begin the exposure of the false brethren who have infiltrated the church to the highest of levels. That's a brilliant... If, if Pope Benedict did this, this is a brilliant move on his part, that he withdrew the papacy so he can expose the absolute corruption in the church in the highest places in the Roman Curia. With those questions in mind, let us look anew at the portion of the third secret is transcribed by Sister Lucia herself, which pertains to the Pope. <clears throat> Quote, And we saw in an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. A bishop dressed in white. We had the impression that it was a Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women and religious going up a steep mountain. At the, top, at the top of which there was a big cross of, of rough-hewn trunks as of a cork tree with the bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city half in ruins and half trembling with halting step. Afflicted with pain and sorrow, he prayed for the souls of the corpse, corpses he met on his way. Close quote. So reflecting on, on what I just read from Sister Lucia's vision, Antonio Socio, another... Uh, very respected Catholic historian in Italy proposes that the bishop dressed in white and the Holy Father may actually be two distinct persons. Hmm. He provocatively asks, does the secret that has as, as its center two figures, the bishop dressed in white and an old pope, speak to us about the present time? Who are these two figures? Further, Sochi notes a truly stunning development. In May 12, 2017 at Fatima, it was Pope Bergoglio himself who said that he is the bishop dressed in white. Hmm. Interesting. The idea that the vision refers to two separate people is not implausible. Sister Lucia herself provides a two-fold clarification of the identity of the bishop dressed in white. She even put her descriptive observations in quotation marks to demarcate them. First, Sister Lucia says that she and her two young companions beheld the appearance of the bishop as something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. She then said, we had the impression that it was the Holy Father later in the document she unequivocally speaks of the Holy Father. In support of the argument that the vision denotes two different people, it can be argued that the children of Fatima were unsure of who the bishop dressed in white was. Little children from a backwater town in Portugal would never have looked upon someone dressed in white and thought he was a bishop. Catholic children in a small European village in the early 20th century knew of only one church leader who dressed in white, the Pope. Furthermore, if they thought that the person dressed in white whom they saw was the Pope, wouldn't Lucia have simply referred to him as such from the very beginning? It is inexplicable that she would describe him as a bishop dressed in white unless in fact the children somehow were given to know or intuited that the, that the individual that they saw was only a bishop who was wearing white. Later in the same testimony when Lucia does indicate that she saw the Holy Father, she has no hesitation about whom she is beholding and the veracity of her assertion. 
If it was the same individual, wouldn't Sister Lucia have continued to refer to him as the bishop in white? Sister Lucia was always extremely attentive to detail and careful to relay, to relay exactly what the Blessed Virgin Mary revealed to her. It would have been quite simple for her to keep referring to the bishop in white if it was in fact one and the same person. But she did not do this. Her words make clear that there are two distinct persons, the bishop dressed in white and the Holy Father. Did Benedict XVI have the foresight to comprehend that his apparent successor would be the bishop dressed in white long before Bergoglio was even elected? Did Benedict understand well in advance what Sochi would one day speculate was the meaning of the third secret? Was he the first pope to grasp that the third secret denotes a true pope and a false one? An apparent pope was actually only a bishop dressed in white, which was what Sister Lucia was trying to say, and of course, also the Blessed Virgin from the start. Benedict knew the framework of Tychonius' theology of the end times well. He knew that after the unity, there's going to be another separation in the last contest. He also knew that the holy people, having been clearly warned by God, will leave the false church, causing the great division, great apostasy, Within such an understanding of eschatology and ecclesiology, what must happen to the church in the end times? The two figures described by Sister Lucia would have taken on a unique significance in the, in the acute theologically uh, aware mind of Joseph Ratzinger. It seems quite possible that at a certain point, Pope Benedict XVI ascertained the overlap and intersection of the message of Fatima and the theology of Tychonius, and in doing so, realized his own staggering and momentous mission that he was called, like Abraham, to set forth in faith, not knowing where he was to go, to take the church as Abraham took Isaac and prepared to her to offer her as a holocaust, so that from one man himself, as good as dead, numerous descendants may come forth because of Benedict's faith. A step could only be taken because of a direct personal call from God. That would take that would make no sense if it, if considered in terms of human calculation or worldly prudence, but a step that would initiate a new exodus for the new Israel at the hour of her final Passover, when she will follow her Lord in His death and resurrection. No faithful Catholic would would dare to take such a step of separation of withdrawal from what appears to be the true Church, unless he was following the true successor of Peter. There would be no definitive separation, no great apostasy of the true church from the false unless Peter himself were to step out in faith led by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, if the false church were to be perfected in its iniquity, it would require its own false ruler as foretold by Padre Pio. At the moment of the great apostasy of false pope, one who appears to be a, to be a pope, but in fact is only a bishop drawn from a group of bishops, who in Tychonius' words do under the guise of a gift of the church what advances the will of the devil, a counterfeit of the true church, but only an illusion, something that is seen as in a mirror, permitted to have power to deceive the entire world and almost the entire church, to expose and reveal the mystery of iniquity concealed within the church that is now to be definitively destroyed by a deliverance that God himself will provide. Venerable Fulton Sheen described the coming anti-church anti with uncanny accuracy as early as 1948. He writes, The Antichrist will have one secret, which he will tell no one. He will not believe in God because his religion will be brotherhood, 
the will be brotherhood without the fatherhood of God. He will deceive even the elect. He will set up a counter church which will ape will which will be the ape of the true church, because he the devil is the ape of God. It will have all the notes and characteristics of the church, but in reverse and emptied of its divine content. It will be a mystical body of the Antichrist and will be in all externals resemble the mystical body of Christ. Sheen's prophetic statements resonate with the address given by Cardinal Carol Wojtyla, the future Pope, John Paul II, back in 1976 in Pennsylvania. He said, We are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has experienced. I do not think that the wide circle of the American society or the whole wide circle of the Christian community realize this fully. We're now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church, between the gospel and the anti-gospel, between Christ and the Antichrist. This confrontation lies within the plans of divine providence. It is therefore in God's plan, and it must be a trial which the church must take up and face courageously. Did Benedict XVI glean from the third secret in accord with the teaching of Tychonius that in God's providential designs, the climax of the confrontation between the true church and the anti-church could only take place when the valid successor of Peter permitted the arrival of the bishop dressed in white. That was shown to the children of Fatima, was exactly what Sister Lucia describes a mirror image, one who appears to be the Holy Father, but in fact is only a double. Was Sister Lucia additionally trying to communicate and highlight this semblance of a pope, and she said, we had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Does she intend to place the emphasis in that sentence on the word impression? We had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Was this because when the bishop dressed in white would finally appear, the whole world would be under the same impression? While in point of fact, that bishop dressed in white could only resemble the Pope the, the way an image seen in a mirror resembles reality, an imitation, an empty reproduction, a usurper. If so, did this awareness lead Pope Benedict to set out in faith like Abraham, not knowing where he was going, handling practical power over the visible structure of the church to a bishop dressed in white so as to initiate the great apostasy. All of this makes sense to me. This article needs to be read by every single Catholic and you'll kind of understand where we're at right now. It appears that Pope Benedict XVI is smarter than all of us give him credit for. He's the new Abraham leading the church as a lamb to sacrifice and giving way to this anti-church under this bishop dressed in white. That's a wrap. St. Padre Pio said, pray hope and don't worry. Worry is useless. God is merciful and will hear your prayer. God bless you. Keep the faith. Stay tuned up next. Gary Machuda, Hands on Apologetics. We're out.